During a routine flight from Portland, Oregon to Seattle, Washington on November 24, 1971, a man claiming to be armed with a bomb demanded $200,000 in ransom money and four parachutes. After releasing the passengers, he instructed the crew to fly to Mexico City. Within 30 minutes of the second flight taking off, he opened the door to the plane and parachuted into the night. The hijacker, known only as D.B. Cooper from the name on his ticket, has never been caught or identified. Welcome to Let's Be Briefed. I'm Sydney. And I'm Sarah. And this week we're talking about D.B. Cooper. Ooh. Are you, how familiar are you with, like, the D.B. Cooper story? I would say I'm pretty familiar, I think. Like, I watched, um... Okay. Who are the BuzzFeed guys that are no longer with BuzzFeed on the ghost hunting guys? Unsolved? Yeah. Unsolved. Yeah, they did one and I watched it, but... I don't remember a lot, I feel like. Also, I didn't know it was in Portland, like, in that area. I thought it was, like, New York for some reason. I guess I kind of did, too. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know where I thought it was, but I didn't know that either. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and I feel like this is, like, one of the United States, like, biggest, like, unsolved mysteries. Like, along with, like, Zodiac Killer, like, there are only a few that are, like, these big stories. Yeah. I feel like people talk about him all the time. Yeah. there's a, Or at least people yeah. I know. I don't know. Right, right, right. What's normal? There's a um, Netflix docuseries or documentary on it, too. That's pretty good. I know you don't have Netflix. Oh, but... I have it for one month because oh. I got it to watch the One Piece live action. <laughs> so I have it until the end of November. <laughs> So maybe I'll watch it. What's it called? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, just D.B. Cooper, I think. Oh, okay. All right. So, on the day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man carrying a black briefcase purchased a one-way ticket from Portland to Seattle using cash under the name Dan Cooper. Dan Cooper was described by those present as a white male in his mid-40s with dark hair and brown eyes, wearing a black or brown business suit, white shirt, a thin black tie, a black raincoat, and brown shoes. That's probably like everyone. I know! <laughs> Especially in the 70s, I feel like people dressed up to fly. Yeah, definitely. I don't know why I thought this was like late 60s, not 71. Wow, well, same thing. Dan Cooper? Where did B come from? We'll, we'll get there. Okay, okay. We'll get there. Cooper boarded flight 305, which was a Boeing 727, sat in seat 18E in the last row, and ordered a bourbon and 7-Up. There were 37 passengers and 6 crew members on the flight. Shortly after takeoff, Cooper handed the flight attendant Florence Schaefer, who was sitting in the jump seat directly behind Cooper, a note. She assumed it was his phone number and dropped it into her purse without reading it. So he whispered, Miss, you better look at the note. I have a bomb. Oh my god. Can you imagine? <laughs> I could definitely see just putting the note somewhere else. Like, I know, I being this. like, I don't want to deal with this. 
Yeah, but then him saying, I have a bomb. Oh my god, what if you're next to him? I think he was the only one in the row, though. Oh, okay. I believe. That would be scary if he he was next to someone. Yeah. Yeah, it would be. So, when she opened the note, she saw in neat, all capital letters, Miss, I have a bomb in my briefcase and I want you to sit by me. Which, okay, when it said, like, neat, all capital letters, you know, like, engineering writing? Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, that's what I'm picturing. That, like, very very square. Yeah, like, there's a specific handwriting for engineers. Yeah. I wish I learned it, but I didn't. Maybe that should be my goal for next year is to learn how to write, like, an engineer. Because I think it looks really good. Like, I don't know. It's so satisfying. Everything is, like, a block. Yeah, and it's all the same exact size, too. Yes. I, like, learned a little bit in my CAD class, but yeah, yeah, once yeah, we I... did AutoCAD, it was like, oh. Right. Yeah, I'm going to, that's actually cool. going to be one of my goals. I want engineering handwriting. <laughs> <laughs> For all the times you write now. I write a lot of notes. Oh, okay. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. She got up and sat in the seat next to him and asked to see the bomb. So he opened his briefcase to reveal two rows of four red cylinders, which she assumed were dynamite, that were attached by a wire to a large battery. That's a lot of dynamite, isn't it? I know. (laughs) Does he need that much? Yeah, he's going to take down the whole plane. Yeah, but wouldn't you be able to take down the plane by just taking out, like, a window or something? True. Because of the air pressure? Or Or just the tail? Right. Yeah, you don't have to blow it all up in the air. You just gotta take off a little piece. Well, who knows what it even was? They never recovered the bomb. Well, yeah, I feel like just a red cylinder. Yeah. Right, it could have been, like, a painted PVC pipe if she was dumb enough. (laughs) <laughs> or like something isn't it wrapped in like a wax paper type what thing? is bombs oh dynamite yeah. <laughs> i've never seen real dynamite but i think it's like yeah i think it's like wrapped in paper so actually it's probably wrapped in like a anti i don't know i've seen some of that like, oh yeah anti-corrosive packaging stuff i don't know where they came from we saw them in school but i think it's wrapped in paper so it could have been Literally, like, Oscar right. Mayer hot dogs wrapped in paper. Like, we don't know. Right. I feel like it wasn't. <laughs> Imagine he opens the briefcase and it just reeks of a hot dog. <laughs> He'd be like, sir, these are red hot dogs. Painted hot dogs. <laughs> With wire. Help. I bet it was fake, but yeah. Yeah, I think so, too. So, after he showed her the bomb, he started making his demands. She took notes and brought them to the cockpit to inform the flight crew of the situation. And then they asked her to stay in the cockpit and, like, write down everything that happened. The crew captain, William A. Scott, contacted the airline... Okay, so the airline was Northwest Orient, but I'm just going to call it Northwest for the rest of this because that's too many words. Two words. <laughs> Northwest is like two words already. It's 
really one though, but okay. That's fine. Okay. Well, yeah. she contact or he contacted their flight operations, which was in Minnesota, to relay the demands. And he had asked for $200,000, which is roughly $1.5 million today, along with two front parachutes and two back parachutes, all in a, like, backpack by 5 p.m. And he asked that the money be in negotiable U.S. currency. And it was assumed that he would be taking hostages when he asked for, like, four parachutes. So the authorities wouldn't supply, like, Oh. equipment that didn't work right that makes sense unless they're like we gotta stop this guy and we'll just have three casualties <laughs> i don't think they would have oh. done that that's a lot of no, money i don't think so it is wow. it is and then when after that he requested that like upon their arrival in seattle the crew and passengers would remain on board and be met by fuel trucks to refuel the plane and receive the money and after he received all of the money and parachutes he would release the passengers mm. so an air traffic controller in seattle contacted the police and fbi and the passengers on the plane were told that their arrival in seattle was being delayed due to weather and the flight circled seattle for two hours while the fbi got all the money together for the exchange how mad would you be if you were on a flight? I would be so <laughs> Just mad. circling? I've, I mean, that's happened before where we had to circle for so long. That's happened twice. One time when I was going to Sedona and I flew in to Phoenix and then we were just circling, circling, circling. And then eventually they were like, the thunderstorm wasn't moving out of Phoenix. Like it was oh. just sitting there. And they were eventually like, we're going to have to go to, to Las Vegas Oh, I remember instead. when that happened. So we landed in Vegas. Yeah, and then we drove to Sedona oh for five God. hours at like midnight. I don't. The other time we ended up being able to land, but I hate when you're just circling or just sitting. Yeah, that happened to Mark. He flew in from Dallas and there was a thunderstorm and they wouldn't let them off the plane for like an hour just sitting there. Yeah, I hate that. I didn't read his text that said don't come get me yet because <laughs> just sitting there. Yeah, so I just sat at the airport for an hour and it was like pouring otherwise wow. I would have just gone home. But like right. the weather was bad and I was like oh, I don't want to drive all the way home and drive all the way back. So I just sat. Yeah. That sucks. And I'd be so mad that it's not even actually... Like, they... I mean, obviously, they can't tell everyone what's going on. Right. But like, when right. you find out later, it's like, what the hell? Because <laughs> of this guy who we had to fucking circle around. Yeah. Yeah. And then the flight attendant... Or a flight attendant, Tina Mucklow, was instructed to sit, like, stay by his side... And reported that he seemed to know the area very well. He was able to identify Tacoma and said that the McCord Air Force Base was only a 20-minute drive from the airport. She also said that he didn't seem nervous and was nice and not cruel in any way. And while they were sitting there, he asked her where she was from. And she told him she was born in Pennsylvania, but that she's living in Minnesota right now. And he was like... 
Oh, Minnesota is a very is very nice country. So she asked him back where he was from, and he got upset. Oh. <laughs> and did not like that. And then he also, like, told her that he didn't have a grudge against that airline specifically. He just had a grudge in general, and the flight served his purpose. Oh, a grudge against flying or against... He didn't specify. Yeah. Or he just, that's the way he wanted to get his money. I guess. So, when they... Okay, the ransom money, which was 10,000 unmarked $20 bills, had serial numbers mostly beginning with L's, and they were all photographed on microfilm by the FBI prior to the ransom drop, which makes sense, but how do you fucking take pictures of 10,000... That's why it took two hours. Bills, right. You got, must have scanned it somehow. You got a hundred people or something. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're in stacks. They didn't take the stacks apart. Oh. I guess they must be sequential, right? Like Yeah, if you know if like the first bills. and the last, then yeah. It, yeah. Yeah, maybe you just write down the first bill and the last bill in the stack. I that guess. would make sense. Yeah, I mean, you can't spend any of this then. Like... I mean, I don't understand why people do any do of this. this. They, well, money laundering, you can... Yeah, I guess that's No true. one's going to recognize one bill. Right. They're going to recognize if you try to pay for a car with, like, a fat stack of bills that are <laughs> right. all in sequential order. Right. That's true. <laughs> you got to be like the Ozarks or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I miss yeah, that Yeah, exactly. Show. Put it in the wash machine. Yeah. At 5.45, they informed the pilot that the parachutes had been received and, like, it was safe to land. And Cooper requested that only one person bring everything out to the plane. And that person could only enter through the front door of the plane. Like, any on and off had to be through the front door of the plane. Okay. Are there... And... Is there a back okay. door? Yes. Oh. On this plane, there oh, is a yeah. back door. Okay. Um, they also... So, Tina, the flight attendant, met the, a representative from the airline and retrieved everything and brought it back on to his the back seat of the plane. And then he let... Like, once he had the money, he released all of the passengers and most of the crew. And when they were leaving... Tina asked him for some of the money, like, as a joke, and he tried oh. to give her, like, a huge wad of cash, and she wouldn't take it because it was against company policy. And, like, a few other times on the flight, he tried to tip her and two of the other flight attendants with money from his own pocket, and they kept refusing it. He felt bad. <laughs> I really like that you guys are being so nice to me when I say I'm a right. bomb. Like, here's some, here's 20 bucks. Like, right, and he's, like, all calm, cool, and collected. He's like, I know I'm doing a bad thing, but I'm not a bad person. Right. Yeah, I have my motives, which I just can't share. But they make sense, for sure. Right. You'd be on my side if you knew. Well, he probably couldn't share because it would have helped identify him. <laughs> well, yeah, right. So, while they were on the ground, there was, like, a delay in refueling the plane, 
and during that time, Cooper complained that the money had been put in a cloth bag instead of, like, a backpack like he wanted. Oh. So he proceeded to take one of the parachutes, pull it all out, cut off the parachute part, and then put the money in the parachute backpack. Oh, wow. So he really did not need all those parachutes. He just asked for all of them so that they wouldn't give him fucked up parachutes. Yeah, he probably knew that they would do that. If you just say one, you have to ask definitely for more than one. Four is a little overkill, but... I would be really afraid to parachute on a parachute that I didn't pack myself. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like... The only way to know it's done right is if you do it yourself. Right. I also watched a video that said if you parachute out of a a regular, like, plane, like, there's so much cause of injury. Like, you could hit... Well, I guess he's went out of the back, right? I was like, you could hit the the engine or the tail or... Because, like, you're so much faster than a parachute than a whatever. The planes that they use. Yeah. Yeah, I could so see that. you just fly out and fucking break your arm or something. Yeah. Right. Just get sucked right into the fucking turbine. Right. And you're splattered. Yeah. <laughs> so, when they were finally able to take off after the... Like, it took three fuel trucks to get them set up. But, oh, my God. Um, he gave the pilots his flight plan, which was a route towards Mexico City, and it had to be at the slowest speed possible without stalling the plane. That makes sense. No higher than 10,000 feet. Landing gear had to be deployed. Wing flaps had to be lowered 15 degrees, and the cabin needed to remain unpressurized. See, that's what I'm saying, because that's more closer to... He yeah, knows something. That's closer to being the the planes for when you jump out right right well also how the fuck would he know that this is 1971 like he had to have a right yeah air background yeah he definitely was part of that area or the group or something like he had some training right yeah yeah because you wouldn't like fuck if I know even I think even if I researched it I wouldn't know you know like that's not something you easily look up how to jump out of a commercial airline like now there's like YouTube videos like the one I saw (laughs) but but back then he had to have been a a pilot of some kind or something right or skydiver I wonder if it was literally just that this flight happened to be the right plane Yeah. I don't know. Because he said he didn't care about the actual company. He was like, this just meets my time that I wanted and the type of plane or... Yeah. Yeah. And like the... Like maybe their entire fleet was Boeing's. Maybe he worked for Boeing. Maybe. Is this... Because Boeing is in... Yeah. Seattle. But it was 71 when they were changing whatever their culture... Oh my god, was it? When they you don't when know. they merged with I can't remember what the other company was called. Yeah. I don't remember either. Uh McDonald? McDougal Douglas? No. Yeah, Mc Or was it just McDougal? Yeah. 
It says McDonald oh. Douglas. That was in '97. Oh. So yeah, this was back this. when Boeing was still uh, big. You know what I mean? Like this was Safe. Boeing's heyday. Yeah. <laughs> Why the fuck do I know so much about the history of Boeing? <laughs> Because <laughs> of the documentary. I know. I'm a sponge for information. So the crew basically told him that flying so slowly would mean that they would need to refuel. And they all agreed that they would refuel in Reno. And he directed the crew to leave the rear door of the plane open and the air stair extended. And Northwest Orient complained that this was unsafe and he said it can be done just to he said it can be done just do it and then asked that tina remain on board like how would he fucking know it could be done right yeah that's weird like clearly he's not just a regular civilian that's all i'm right yeah definitely not yeah he knows something a lot of somethings (laughs) (laughs) about flying yeah. Or planes. Yeah. Yeah. So at 7.40 p.m. the plane took off and only Cooper, Tina, Captain Scott, First Officer, Radicek, <laughs> I think. I don't know. It's a CZAK. That could be fucking anything. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I would have said Radizek or something. Radizek? Whatever. I'm sure he'll be mad, but... (laughs) Is he alive still? Probably not. And then the flight (laughs) engineer, Anderson, were on board. Oh. And two F-106 fighters from the nearby Air Force Base and a Lockheed T-33 trainer followed them, remaining in an S-pattern to stay behind the plane so he could, like, to keep it out of his line of sight. Oh, okay. Were they gonna shoot him out? Oh, what was I gonna say? Oh, yeah, were they gonna, like, shoot him out of the air when he jumped? Or they didn't know what he was doing. Right, they didn't know, so I think they just were following and also just looking so that they could maybe find him after. Yeah. So the the pilots couldn't, like, radio saying, like, this is where we're going or whatever? I mean, they had to say... Right, right. Everyone knew what the plan was. Okay. They were just told But, like, did to they comply. say that he wanted... He wanted them to, like, leave the stair and stuff down? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they knew. They said that, like, the airline was like, fucking no. And they, he said, fucking do oh, yeah. it. The entire crew was told to stay in the cockpit with the curtain closed so that they couldn't see what he was doing. There's only a curtain? I guess. In the 70s? In the 70s? Yeah, they don't have a door. He didn't even have to show his ID to buy the plane ticket. Right. That's true. Wow. This is hard to imagine. I know. Um... And around 8 p.m., the cockpit warning light flashed, and the pilot asked Cooper over the intercom if he needed any help, and he replied, no, and that's, like, the last anyone heard of him. Okay. And then at 8.13, the crew's, like, ears popped from the stairs being put down, and the aircraft tail, like, suddenly pitched upwards, 
and they like had to rewrite the plane and that happened over the suburbs of Portland and then at 11.02 like they tried to talk to him a couple times throughout the rest of the flight and never got a response um, wow. but at 11.02 the plane landed in Reno and they confirmed that Cooper was no longer on board and that the bomb had been taken with him and the cabin was safe oh, okay so that's like it for the story like wait so the trailing planes never saw no because it was nighttime it was dark and he was wearing all black right wow right yeah that's crazy so they they have like nighttime vision not in the 70s right not in the 70s and it's the parachute wasn't even picked up on radar like they were trying Oh, but okay, they got nothing. So yeah, they found sixty-six latent fingerprints in the plane, and the FBI found his tie tie clip, two of the four and two of the four parachutes. So they immediately began interviewing witnesses, and they were able to put together a composite sketch, which I feel like everyone's seen. He just looks like a regular guy. Yeah, it'd be hard to pick them out in the crowd or anything yeah um and then they thought that there was a possibility that the hijacker had used his real name and the portland police department found a man named db cooper and a reporter who was like in a rush to meet a deadline accidentally confused the name of the hijacker with that man's name and reported it and then other news sources began to report the same thing so like everyone like his name was it was never db cooper it was dan cooper and there just happened to be this other guy named db cooper and it turned into like you know what like everyone picks up a false story right so he's been db cooper pretty much ever since then even though that was never his name oh my god i'd be so mad if i was the actual db cooper i know never and be like is this you it's like right. no <laughs> wow i didn't know that part yeah and then they wanted to go back and find where he would have jumped like the the flight path like they couldn't figure out where to look because the airspeed estimates and environmental conditions varied so much with the location and altitude of the flight path like they didn't have like a oh. a defined here's exactly where we flew over right and on top of that like they don't know how long he was falling before he pulled his rip cord yeah and they didn't pick that up on radar either so it's like he could have i bet he went a long time before pulling it till he knew it was out of like radar right range or whatever yeah, and then you could go in any direction once you pull it. Right. And I think I read somewhere that, like... Oh, wait, I'll get to it. Never mind. Never mind. We'll get there. We'll get there. So, by December 6th, J. Edgar Hoover, our, my least favorite person in the history of ever... That's uh, your least favorite person? Maybe Kissinger is bad, too. Kissinger and Hoover were bad dudes. You're talking about presidents or uh I think J. Edgar Hoover they... was the 
like commissioner of the FBI or something. Like he was the head of the oh. FBI, but he's the one who did all the COINTEL Pro stuff. Like he was crazy paranoid. Why okay, why was I thinking of someone else? You're probably thinking what of Herbert it? Hoover. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was like, there's a Hoover president. <laughs> but not him, okay. You have to cut that part out. <laughs> But he approved using an SR-71 Blackbird to retrace and photograph the flight path in an attempt to locate the items Cooper used for his escape. But the SR-71 made five trips, but due to f poor visibility, they couldn't even get, like, good pictures. Oh. Why weren't they out there in helicopters? Right. Also, like, didn't... When their ears popped, I mean, shouldn't they have known that was the moment? Well, that was him opening. Right. But they don't know when he jumped, I guess. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, That's yeah. true. Hmm. Um, they put out, like, a ton of rewards for the ransom money. Like, you could earn up to 15%, up to $20,000 on it, which I guess at that time, like, was a lot like however much you found oh, yeah. you could get 15% of um but like there was no no none of it was ever seen like they distributed lists to casinos banks like but first of all who is checking that because I wouldn't be checking that like who is looking at all the serial numbers like if it's just one $20 I mean, bill if you own a bank though yeah, if you or you own the casino. Yeah, but like back you then should... it would have been hand looking at them and referencing a list. Yeah, but I feel like they would do that for every dollar you get. No, just the twenty dollar bill. I feel like they get a lot of twenties. <laughs> <laughs> but it has to start with an L, right? Like you would. That would be pretty quick. Oh, check I guess first. Yeah. But how like, many other ransoms are out there? Like, I think some lazy... Yeah, I guess. Some lazy worker <laughs> just said no. Right. I don't know. Yeah. Um, But they didn't see any of the money until February 10th, 1980, when an eight-year-old found $5,800 in the sand along the banks of the Columbia River in Vancouver, Washington. And what? experts believe that the water washed up there and it hadn't oh. been buried and 10 bills were missing from one of the stacks. Mm. But like, they don't, like it was all like worn like it had washed there, not that someone buried it. Yeah. Okay. How would it have gotten in the river? Well, Where's Vancouver, Washington? It's north of Portland. Oh. Right on the border. Um, Is that the way the river goes? No. <laughs> right, so he had to sense. be... Yeah, that doesn't make sense. Like, they... Like, right, they don't think it washed up there. And, like, I saw somewhere that basically there were, like pollen particles on the money that proved that it didn't get put there until like months after he would have jumped so it's not like it he jumped it's not like he threw it out of the plane or something oh okay yeah um 
So, from the beginning of their investigation, the FBI was skeptical about Cooper's chances and speculation speculated that he didn't survive the jump, and the FBI provided several reasons and facts to support their conclusion, but his apparent lack of skydiving experience and unfamiliarity with parachutes, lack of proper equipment for his jump and survival, and the inclement weather on the night of the hijacking, and the wooded terrain into which he jumped, his lack of knowledge of his landing area and the unused... Like, he never used the money. Mm. So, yeah. did he die? But how did they not find him? Like, they would have found... By now, someone would have found his parachute hung up in a tree or something. Right. Like, parachutes are big. Yeah. I feel like you would definitely see that by now. Yeah. So, at first... Cooper appeared to lack the necessary skydiving knowledge, skills, and experience for that type of jump he attempted. And they, he said, we originally thought Cooper was an unexperienced jumper, perhaps even, or was an experienced jumper, perhaps even a paratrooper. We concluded after a few years that this was simply not true. No experienced parachutist would have jumped into the pitch black night in the rain with a 172 mile per hour wind and his face wearing loafers and a trench coat it's simply too risky that's true he's wearing a trench coat i forgot about that i also forgot it was raining i don't think i mentioned it was raining but it was raining yeah that does not seem like or he's just really he like he's just really confident in himself. But do parachutes work well in the rain? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> I feel like in the wind and rain it would get like twisted up easier. Right. And, and the wouldn't... one he had you couldn't like steer. Oh. Well that makes it even worse. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It's not looking good now if he survived. Well, I don't know. Yeah. A skydiving instructor who supplied the parachutes testified that he did not need extensive experience to survive the jump, and anyone who had even six or seven practice jumps could accomplish it. Hmm. But he also noted jumping at night drastically increased the risk of injury and a jump without... And without jump boots, he would have suffered severe ankle or leg injuries upon landing. Yeah, break his ankle or something. What the fuck do jump boots look like? I don't know. I'm assuming, like, similar to snow boots. Parachute. Like, the way they look? Um, they look like army boots. Yeah. It probably just what, was he wearing loafers? Yeah, loafers. Yeah, he probably broke his ankle at least. Yeah. Um, he also did not appear to have the equipment necessary for either his jump or his survival in the wilderness. He failed to bring or request a helmet and jumped into a 15 degree Fahrenheit wind at 10,000 feet in November over Washington State with nothing to protect him against the extreme wind chill. 
Yeah, that's true. And the contents of his... He had a 4 by 12 by 14 paper bag with him, too. But it said that he did not use any of the contents to assist him during any part of the hijacking, so they suspected that the bag contained items he needed for his jump, like boots, gloves, and goggles. And he oh. also did not appear to have an accomplice on the ground. Could boots fit in a 12 by 14 by 4 bag? I don't think I guess. so. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, but... I mean, I guess he could have had stuff in there to help him. Right, at least gloves and goggles? I don't know. I would, yeah, I feel like he needs goggles. It's raining. Like, how would he, he wouldn't be able to see anything with the right. wind if oh he didn't have God. goggles at yeah, least. Yeah, his poor eyeballs. It's right. freezing, it's raining, and it's black. And the wind. Yeah, you're just jumping into, like... Void. Yeah, literally the <laughs> void. I don't know if he survived. Uh, yeah, you know, now I'm thinking maybe he didn't. Um, and there's no way he could have had an accomplice because it would have to be, like, precisely timed. Oh, yeah. And, like, they'd have to follow a predetermined flight path, but he did not give the flight crew a specific path. And the flight crew proposed and he agreed to alter the flight path and fly from Seattle to Reno for refueling. So he had no way of keeping an accomplice, like, up to date on his changed plans. Yeah. And the low cloud cover and visibility to the ground made it even worse. Like, harder to determine his location or establish a bearing or see his landing zone. Like, he just jumped. Right. Into the woods. Yeah. They think he landed near Mount St. Helens, though. Oh, okay. Is that, like, not woods, then? It is definitely woods. Okay. I can't imagine landing into trees. And maybe he got hung up in a tree. Maybe he's literally just out there. And no one's found him still? I don't know how wild... Like, how wilderness is it? That's not proper English, but... (laughs) But I would think... People hike around there and stuff. They do a lot. Yeah, so... and I think you'd find at least, like, fabric, like, from the parachute or something. Right. You're right. I don't know. Um, And the fact that the ransom money was never spent and the recovered portion was found unused, like, it just kind of all points to the fact that he probably didn't survive. Yeah. Some people think he had hypothermia, and some people think he landed in the river and drowned, which would explain how no one ever found him. Right. Yeah, that's true. I don't think he survived. I don't either. <laughs> um, and a senior FBI agent anonymously opined in a 1976 article in the Seattle Times and said I think he made it I think he slept in his own bed that night it was a clear night a lot of the country is pretty flat he could have just walked out right down the road how they weren't even looking for him there at the time they thought he was somewhere else he could have just walked down the road 
That wasn't a clear night. I don't know what that meant. Because it, it was said raining. rain. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know about this guy. Depends on where he jumped from. He could have oh. made it seem like he jumped at any point. Right. I guess it wasn't raining the whole time. Right. And he, like, who's to say he didn't jump over northern Nevada right before? But then how did the money get to the Columbia River? That's a good point. Unless he threw out some of the money. He could have. Right. And then waited. Yeah. Oh, maybe he survived. (laughs) I'm changing my mind. I mean, there's, we don't know. Yeah. Um, and conclusive evidence of his death has also not been found. Five people attempted copycat hijackings in the months after this, and all five survived their parachute escapes. Hmm. The survival of the copycat, several of whom faced circumstances and conditions similar to Cooper's jump, forced FBI lead case agent Ralph Himmelsbach to evaluate reevaluate his opinions and theories regarding his chances of survival and he cited three examples of hijackers who survived in similar conditions who were Martin McNally, Frederick Hahnemann, and Richard LaPointe. Never heard of those people. I know. I did not know there were so many hijackings. Why weren't we Right. Well, there's always copycats. Right. But there's a whole bunch of information on the copycats that we're not going to talk about because I don't want to talk about it. Um, (laughs) By 1976, most published legal analyses concurred that the implementing expiration of the statute of limitations for prosecution of the hijacker would make little difference since the statute's interpretation varies from case to case and from court to court a prosecutor could argue that cooper had forfeited legal immunity on any on several valid technical grounds and by 1976 a portland grand jury returned an indictment in absentia against John Doe, a.k.a. Dan Cooper, for air piracy in violation of the Hobbs Act, and the indictment formally initiated prosecution to be continued should the hijacker be apprehended at any time in the future. So they, like, basically started a case. Right. Just in case they yeah. find him. I mean, they're not going to now. No. But it's kind of interesting. Yeah, that is. So now we're going to... thought for sure he'd be found. Yes. Now we're going to get into a few of the suspects. I didn't... There's so many. There were like 20 suspects, so I didn't go into them. I just picked the biggest ones. But Theodore Burdett Braden Jr. was a special forces commando in the Vietnam War, a master skydiver, and a convicted felon. And he was believed by many within the special forces community at the time of the hijacking and years after to have been Cooper. He was born in Ohio and first joined the military at the age of 16. And he served in the 101st Airborne during World War II. 
and was one of the military's leading parachutists, often representing the army in international skydiving tournaments. And his, oh my god, his military record listed him having 911 jumps. That's a lot. Yes. But why would he do it? Well, we'll get there. Okay. So, in the 60s, he was a team leader for, I don't even know how they say this, but MACVSOG, a classified commando unit of Green Berets, which conducted unconventional warfare operations during the Vietnam War. And he was a skydiving instructor teaching halo jump jumping techniques to members of Project Delta. And he was in Vietnam for 23 months. But that's crazy. In 1966, he deserted his unit in Vietnam and made his way to the Congo to serve as a mercenary. Oh wow. He went rogue? Yeah. Okay. But the CIA got him and brought him back to the US. Wow. And then they said that he committed oh no. They said have despite having committed a capital offense by deserting in wartime, he was given an honorable discharge and was barred from re-enlisting in the military in exchange for his continued secrecy about that program that he was involved in, the MACVSOG, which is probably when they were, like, killing civilians and stuff. You know what I mean? Oh. Like, they were doing some shady yeah. stuff during Vietnam. Right. I can't believe he became a mercenary. I know. He was just like, I can't spend... An- well, maybe he saw more. all the horrible things they were doing and said, right. what the heck am I doing with myself? Yeah, what am I doing here? Almost two years. Right. That's true. In 1967, he was profiled in an issue of Rampart magazine, Ramparts, where he was described by fellow Special Air Force veteran and journalist Don Duncan as being someone with a secret death wish who continues to place himself in unnecessary danger but always seems to get away with it. Hmm. Well, yeah, maybe he didn't want to survive. <laughs> and he didn't... He deliberately disregarded military skydiving safety regulations. Oh, wow. He's like, I've done this enough. I don't need your safety. Yes. And he... <laughs> Oh, they also said that he was continuously involved in shady deals to make money. Wow. Yep. But none of the money was used. I know. And, okay, this is crazy. And during the time of the hijacking, he was a truck driver for Consolidated Freightways, which was a which was headquartered in Vancouver, Washington, just across the Columbia River from Portland, and not far from where they thought he jumped. Oh wow! Wow! And at some point in the early 1970s, he was investigated for stealing $250,000 during a trucking scam he had allegedly devised, but was never charged of the crime. Hmm. I I guess I could see him then. Yeah, people did not like him. (laughs) His family (laughs) said that he was the perfect combination of high intelligence and criminality. (laughs) Why would would you say it like that? (laughs) 
That's how I want to be described. <laughs> but like, why? I don't understand the purpose that he would do that, though. Right. Just for fun. Just to see if he can yeah, get away with it. Yeah, just to say, it. right. Just to see if this kills him or not. Yeah. And they said that based on the his involvement with the covert operations in Vietnam, he would have possessed the then-classified knowledge about the ability and proper specifications for jumping from a 727 and could have done it himself because they were doing it secretly. Oh, yeah. That makes sense. And... What? I need, I need uh, to pull up a picture of both of these people. <sighs> Yeah, they looked pretty similar. He also... So his military record said he was 5'8", which is shorter than the description of at least 5'10 by the two flight attendants. But he could have been wearing... Um, he could have been wearing shoes with a higher heel. Or, like, he could have had lips in his shoes. People do that. Yeah. It's not hard to be taller. Yeah, but but he had a darker complexion from his outdoor military service and was only 43, which are all... Okay, hold on. He had a dark complexion for many years of outdoor military service, short dark hair, medium athletic build, and was 43 at the time of the hijacking, which are features that are all in line with descriptions of him. So he was, like, the main suspect. That's the only one that I felt like we even needed to talk about. But there have been so many. And obviously none of them were proven to be him. So right. I guess that's all I have for today. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, that's it for this episode. As always, our sources for the episode will be in the description as well as our social media links. We're on Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram, all under Let's Be Briefed, so check us out there for updates. We also have a Patreon, so you can support us there if you like our content and want more of it. Also, email us at letsbebriefed at gmail.com if you have ideas on future topics you'd like us to cover. We're always updating our list with topic options, so if we know you're interested, we can bump a topic up the list. Until next time, stay briefed.